Hello, good evening. Um, as been mentioned, tonight is our last Saturday night service. Um, we'll be starting next Sunday at mm, Classic Theater. So hope to see you all there. Um, tonight, we're going to continue our series on 1 Samuel. We spent the past few weeks talking about Samuel, about how his mother prayed for him and God gave her a son. How that son was raised in the priesthood. And how an adult Samuel did led the people of Israel to a great military victory and raised a monument in Ebenezer. And then we've talked about how in his old age, the people of Israel asked God and Samuel to give them a king. And God obliged and he gave them, anointed a man named Saul to become their first king. And then last week, we heard from Paul about Saul's farewell address, in which he reminds the people both of what God has done for them before in the past and what he wants and what he can do for them in the future. So tonight, we're going to pivot a bit. We're going to go from Samuel to Saul and talk a bit about how Saul follows God. And tonight, what I want to talk about is four points about what it actually means to follow God. But I'm going to start by telling a story about a young man. It this happened and I believe he was yeah. Happened back in 2003. This young man was out of school. He had stopped at a corner across from the rec center. His mind, well, it was full of anguish, full of anger, full of sadness. He had a lot he was thinking of because he had gone to that school thinking he was following the will of God, thinking that God was going to help him to teach his belief, fellow believers how to follow him. But he had also, in the back of his mind, thought that following God's plan, as he saw it, meant that he would be rewarded for his obedience. And what he wanted, more than money or power or prestige or popularity, what he really wanted at that time in his life was a wife, someone to share his life with. Well, as I said, it was 2003. Things had not gone the way the young man thought they would go. He was taking classes that he didn't like. All his friends he had met at school, they were all gone, scattered all over, all over the world, literally. And most importantly, he was still single. And so, in a very loud voice, full of anger and angst, he screams to the heavens, Screw you, God! You and I are done! I want no more part of you! And then he felt better. <laughs> more angry, fearful, waiting for the thunderbolt. Um, he didn't know, he wasn't sure. Had he just quit Jesus? Is that even possible? We're gonna get back to that young man, but we're gonna start with chapter 13 of 1 Samuel. Um, this chapter starts with a war going on between Israel and the Philistines. 
And according to the text, Samuel, or not Samuel, Saul had assembled a mighty army, or he thought it was a mighty army, until the Philistines decided to show him what a real army looked like. Um, the text is kind of weird at this point, but at the best that we can make out, it says that he, the Philistines assembled over 3,000 chariots, 6,000 chariot drivers, and then I love this part, as many warriors as the grains of sand on the seashore. <laughs> the Israelites take one look at this army that is assembling and they do what a smart person does. They, they scatter. They're, they're running from the hills. They're looking for every hiding place they can possibly find. And so we come to the second half of verse 7 of chapter 13. So Saul remained at Gilgal and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling a mishmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. So we're not going into a lot of details of the text. One, because we don't have time. Two, because even though he's not here, it would only interest Travis, trust me. Um, the, the Hebrew in this, in this chapter is, is a mess, and it's very difficult to translate to figure out what exactly has been going on. As I said earlier, we're not really sure the exact numbers. I gave out a number, that's one that the commentators threw out, but I've seen bigger numbers than that. Um, it's unclear when this event occurs in Saul's reign. We're not sure if it occurs right at the beginning or in the middle. And we're not even sure at what point Samuel tells Saul to wait seven days for this particular incident. What we do know is that the seven days have passed and Samuel hasn't shown up yet. And so Saul takes matters into his own hands and he offers the offerings. Now, why this is a sin, why this is significant, is that, first of all, this is something that's outside the preview of a king, at least a king for Israel. It's the job of a, the priests and the prophets to offer up sacrifices and offerings to God. But I also think that his actions and his response shows something about Saul's relationship to God. For Saul, obedience to God happens so long as God is working on Saul's time schedule. Saul felt he was running out of time. The Philistines were massing to attack. Our army was scattering all over the place. This whole seven, wait seven days until I arrived was looking more and more foolish. And then the seven days in and Samuel's not there. Except as we saw in the text, Samuel does show up. Just in time to see Saul off the offer. See, Saul is working on Saul's time schedule. Samuel is working on God's. So Samuel shows up when he's supposed to and not when Saul wants him to. And therefore, 
Saul's punishment is kind of severe. He still remains king, but he loses the privilege of having the kingship passed to his family. His sons will not inherit the, the kingship. And this brings us to our first teaching point for tonight. To follow God means trusting in God's schedule and timing and not your own. We jump into chapter 14, and the war between the Philistines and the Israelites is now full-blown. We run into a person, a young man, oddly enough, named Jonathan. Jonathan is Saul's firstborn, which means, ironically, that Jonathan would have been the one to inherit the kingship if Saul hadn't screwed up back in thir chapter 13. Jonathan seems to very much trust in God despite some really overwhelming odds. For example, he and his armor bearer at this point decide to go up and attack the Philistine garrison and despite being outnumbered 20 to 1, kill a great number of Philistines and send them into a rout. And that rout starts a panic, a panic that the text says was brought about by God among the Philistine army to the point that the Philistines are now fleeing wildly. And the Israelites finally begin to notice. But what I want to focus on are a couple of incidents that involve Saul talking to God. So when panic occurs, the text says this. Let's see if I can pronounce this right. Saul says, said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God. At that time, it was with the Israelites. While Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the Philistine camp increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all his men assembled and went to the battle. So we see here, Saul initially wants to seek out God's plan, God's instructions, and then he decides not to. And just goes on and joins the battle. Why does he do this? Well, I mean, clearly there's no time to consult God. The Philistines are in panic. They're running away. We don't need a word from God to go after them, do we? It's kind of similar to his thinking back in chapter 13, where he's relying more on his strength of his army and the lack thereof and his own military strength than waiting upon God. And then Saul does something which I think is one of the dumbest, foolish, stupidest moves I've ever seen, or at least I've seen, ever seen anyone give. Um, we go to verse 24. Now the Israelites were in distress that day because Saul had bound the people under an oath saying, cursed be anyone who eats food before evening comes, before I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the troops tasted food. I want you to think back a couple of weeks, some weeks ago, back to Hannah in chapter one of 1 Samuel. She promises to offer up to God her firstborn and God will give her a son. Think what that means, the selflessness of that request. That here she is at a time when women being barren is looked upon as a sign of God's disgrace. And she's not only willing to sacrifice, not only to sacrifice her son, she wants to give that son back to God right after she gets the son. You contrast that with Saul's little oath here. And there's just no point. It, it hampers his troops' ability to fight the to fight the battle. Any soldier will tell you the best way to stop an army is to stop it from eating. Soldiers don't eat; they don't fight. Um, 
but more so, the oath is about Saul's vengeance, his wanting to get revenge against the Philistines, not about protecting Israel. And then Saul finally, as the day goes on and they're continuing to chase the Philistines, Saul finally gets around to asking God one more time about something. And so we read in the next text, Saul said, let us go down and pursue the Philistines by night and plunder them until dawn, and let us not leave one of them alive. Do whatever seems best to you, they replied. But the priest said, let us inquire of God here. So Saul asked God, shall I go down and pursue the Philistines? Will you give them into Israel's hand? But God did not answer him that day. Well, God is silent. Saul immediately does what most of us, I think, would do, in that he assumes someone has done something wrong. Someone has clearly violated his oath. So he starts looking for that culprit, and lo and behold, the culprit is none other than Jonathan, the man who started the whole war and is now considered a hero of Israel, is the one who has broken the oath. See, Jonathan never heard his father give this order. He wasn't around, he wasn't there. He was off on the battlefield. So when he got hungry and weak, he saw some honey on the ground, went and got it and made it. What, what was wrong with that? This is how messed up this oath is. Saul is so incensed about what has happened that he is prepared to put Jonathan to death. And only the near mutiny of his army prevents him from doing so. They basically tell him, we're not going to let you put your son to death. He's our hero. That's the end of it. What does this whole episode tell us about Saul and his relationship with God? I believe it shows that for Saul, God is a convenience, an add-on to his life. It's someone he checks in with when he has time. It's someone who he wants an instant response from when he has a question or need. The New International Commentary says this about Saul, and I really love this description. It says, Saul is a person who prays when he should act and acts when he should pray. Such inconsistency is one of Saul's characteristics. And that brings us to our second teaching point for tonight. To follow God requires that you not treat him as a convenience or an add-on to your life, to be discarded or ignored whenever you desire. We come now to chapter 15. See, we're moving very quickly. Um, Samuel, who is missing in chapter, all of chapter 14 during this entire battle, now shows up again later in Saul's reign with new orders from God to Saul. Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So now listen to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belonged to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. God orders Saul to wipe the Amalekites off the planet. And to understand why, we need to jump back into a couple other Old Testament texts. Um, the first one is Exodus 17. 
This is, occurs during the trip, the, the Israelites' journey from the, Egypt to the Promised Land. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. And when Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady until sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it, because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, the Lord is my banner. He said, because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. Our second passage is from Deuteronomy. And this is Moses, basically Moses' farewell address to the Israelites before his death. Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt, when you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and attacked all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. When the Lord your God gives you rest from all the enemies around you in the land he has given you to possess as an inheritance, you shall blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. We see in these two passages that what has God said is that the Amalekites attacked the Israelites as they are traveling from, from Egypt to the Promised Land. But specifically, the Amalekites didn't attack the main body of the Israelites, they attacked the rear. They attacked the stragglers, the disabled, the ones who were falling behind, the ones who couldn't keep up with the main body. And God promised that one day the name of Amalek would be wiped off the face of the planet. And so we are forced to ask this question, I believe. Does this justify God essentially ordering to genocide of a people? Now, before we get to Saul's response to this command, I, I feel like this is a detour. Um, I've been struggling this whole week with trying to say what I'm about to say, because this is not an easy passage to deal with. And I'm not looking to give an excuse for God or to really to explain God's actions here, because that's really for him to do. What I want to try to do is give a reason for why we need to take this text as it's presented to us and not try to work around it or ignore it or just try to explain it away. So now it's time for audience participation. And I have a question for the audience. What is the opposite of love? love someone or something, you cannot and you will not tolerate any type of attack on it. For example, I love my car. I do. <laughs> so I take care of it. I, I do the maintenance on it. I try to keep it as clean as I can. I spend 
I will not say the figure, but I spent a ton of money just getting the tires replaced a few months back. Um, when you love your spouse, when you love your kids, you react negatively to any kind of insult or threat that is sent against them. You do whatever it, take, it takes to shield them from any type of harm. And if necessary, you may even react physically, maybe even violently against someone who's threatening them. Um, you know, my father died back in October 21. My dad loved my mom. God, he loved her. One of the ways he showed that love is that he did not tolerate any type of criticism of her. You did not make jokes about her, not even in jest. I found that out the hard way. <laughs> um, you just didn't do it, not while he was around. There are many believers, and maybe some in this room, who feel that the God of the Bible is really two different gods. A God of wrath in the Old Testament, a God of love in the New Testament, and the two don't really mix. There are other believers who think we should just throw the Old Testament out and just be New Testament Christians. But I want to say that you can't really take either one of those avenues, especially if you want to continue to take Scripture as God-inspired and relevant to our lives. God is, yeah, God is not wrath only. God's not just love only. He is both. He's both wrath and love. And one way I think to reconcile a God of wrath and love is to remember something very, very important about the Lord. He loves his people. Those who are called by God to be his he loves with a passion and intensity that is unfathomable, undescribable. It's a love that spans ages and boundaries. It's a love that is almost unimaginable. One of my favorite songs, either Christian or non-Christian, is a song called Universe by Rebecca St. James. And the song describes the love of God like this. I'm, no, I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> Like the river that runs to the sea, the oceans speak of your love for me. It's deeper than I can imagine. Higher than the sky is your love for me. Like the river that runs to the sea, the sky it speaks of your love for me. It's wider than I can imagine. And don't have to ever be afraid. Nothing in the universe could take this love away. So how do we make sense of God's wrath against the Malachites? I think we do that by understanding that his eternal love for those who are his children is so great that it spans generations, eons, beyond the definition of time itself. And those who bring harm to his children must and will someday face his judgment and punishment, whether in the immediate now or in the future. We should be at both amazed and scared at how much God loves us. Now, this doesn't mean you get to go out and kill everyone who doesn't like you or who hates you, okay? It doesn't mean you do a Will Smith and slap the crap out of Chris Rock because he makes a joke about your wife at the Oscars. But we get this. We get why he did it. 
And what I'm trying to say is that for God himself, who loves his people despite their continual disobedience, can you see that how it looks? On the surface, it looks, the text, it looks like God hates the Amalekites. It's just as much about the fact that God loves the Israelites. And that brings us to our third, third teaching for tonight. To follow God means loving and obeying, even when God confounds, makes no sense, or even appears to contradict himself and his character. That's a scary And with that, we'll return to Saul. Saul has his orders. Wipe out the Amalekites. Saul doesn't do it. It's plain. Let's put it bluntly. He does not do that. In fact, the text says that he takes the king of the Amalekites alive. He spares the best of the cattle and the sheep. He basically, they spare everything that's good. Anything that was despised and weak, they wiped out. Anything that was good, they kept. And so Samuel shows up again. And this is what he says. Although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission saying, Go, completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites, which war against them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag their king. Now the soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. To heed is better than the fat of rams, for rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. And on those words, Saul's kingdom essentially ends in the eyes of God. Saul pleads for forgiveness, and God says no. So our fourth point for tonight. To follow God means choosing his plans and desires over our own, no matter how honorable or good we may think those plans are. Back to the young man and that story from the beginning. Um, you never figured out by now, young man with me. I turned 51 back in June. I've had a 19 years to look back on that incident. Um, I've been looking back at a lot of things lately. Um, as I was talking to a couple people earlier, um, I've been, before technical IT reasons, I've had to move my journal from one computer program to another, and I have to do it manually each and every entry. So I'm going through, right now, 2002 of my journal and seeing how, where my mind was all those years ago, and it's been very, very difficult. 
this past week, as I've been thinking about that street corner, which I don't like thinking about, because, in full disclosure, I didn't say screw you, God. I said F you, God. And I said it very loud, which is probably would have gotten me in trouble if someone had heard me on the seminary campus. <laughs> but I've had a lot of time to think about it, and thinking about it this week, I find myself asking, God, why didn't you reject me like you rejected Saul? Because to be honest, I see far too much of Saul in me at that time. Um, I see a guy who was working on his own schedule and so God's. I see a guy who at times was making God more an add-on to his life instead of his life. I see someone who just I think even to, to this day is still asking God, why am I single? Saul sins against God. He doesn't follow. And it costs him the kingdom. And I wonder why it hasn't, it just didn't go through my life that day. And honestly, the only answer I have is I don't. All I do know is that even today, I hear the Spirit speaking to me sometimes multiple times through the day. And all he has to say is, Dante, God loves you. He hasn't abandoned you, and he never will. Just trust, believe, and love him. And I think if we want to talk about what it means to follow God, it really comes down to being willing to love Him. But also remembering that we love Him because as 1 John says, He first loved us. Jesus.